We're in a series about the God I don't understand. This series is focusing on some of the difficulties in the Old Testament that sometimes we either just don't know about because we didn't really look, we weren't really reading, or when we did read them, we struggle with them a little bit more. And my approach to this series has been to wade in slowly. We've been dealing with some issues that are really important to Christians, and then we'll start dealing with a little bit difficult topics as we go along. For example, right now, we're kind of covering how does the Old Testament even apply to Christians? Just what applicability does it have to us? You know, you might have read a book sometime recently where someone says, like, you've got a Sabbath. You just have to Sabbath it. If you're not Sabbathing, you're sinning against God. And all of the verses are usually drawn from the Old Testament. And one of the legitimate questions that come up is, well, how applicable is the Old Testament to Christians? We've been dealing with that topic recently. And then we'll wade in a little bit deeper about how come there's so many things you could get the death penalty for in the Old Testament. Like, that seems a little bit different than the merciful God I'm used to. Like, it seemed like you got the death penalty for almost anything. We're going to look at that at the very end tonight, just to preview next week. And then, yes, we get even deeper into views on women, views on slavery. And finally, how come he was going to ask that everybody be massacred or killed? How do we reconcile that with the God we'd like to believe in? So this is kind of the outline of some of the things we're going to be doing. But we're really kind of just bridging from the last time we met, which is the strange laws of the Old Testament and their applicability to us. You might remember a couple weeks ago I asked things like, well, it says you can't have tattoos. Does that apply? You can't wear clothes that have two different types of thread. Does that apply? That would really limit your wardrobe, I think. And if those things don't apply, well, why is it that everything else that we want to pick and choose applies? So, you know, I say really simply that we have questions about the Old Testament. Some of us actually don't have questions because we never really read it. But for those of us who walk into it, some of us have questions and we really get unsatisfactory answers. Um, whenever I think that we shouldn't do a topic or that it's just too heavy to do, I do this thing where I've told you before, I go and read a website that's all ex-Christians. That's the best way to describe it. They're all Christians who have left the faith and talked about why they're no longer Christians. And I just sit there and I read testimony after testimony of what they call deconversion testimonies. Just to remind me that anything we do in this room is relevant to somebody. Just listen to this if you want to know why we're doing this series. Girl writes, my name is Tanya. I've been raised in a fundamentalist Christian home since I was 12 and attended a fundamental church where I was saved at 12. I've always had questions about my religion. I have read the Bible through and saw lots of things that I had problems with. The atrocities committed by quote-unquote godly men and even God in the Old Testament alarmed me. But when I questioned this, I was just told we can't understand God's ways. He has reasons for killing innocent people. What the F? That was the testimony. Here's a guy who writes, After this period, I started getting right back into and reading to see what was going on with my faith. And I found another shock to my faith. As I read the Old Testament, and he writes in parentheses, as I had done many times by this point, I began to see things I didn't see before. I noticed all of the Old Testament characters were ungodly people. They were people I did not want to be like, nor did I think they were good examples to look up to. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, and so on. This didn't set well with me for some reason. Sure, there was genocide. <laughs> and many other atrocities, but what really got me was the character of the quote-unquote godly people. That's what disturbed me. If you were talking to this person sitting next to you who brought this up in a discussion, what would be your response? That's why we're doing this series. Maybe our preparation, maybe this doesn't matter so much to you, but I always believe that many of these things matter to someone else. And if it does matter to you, then I'm glad we're doing this series for that reason. 
because maybe you've wondered or you've wanted to find an answer and haven't found one. So here's the question we left off as we did some of our work last time. We asked this question, what relevance does the law itself, the restrictions and the requirements of the law, what relevance do they have for Christians today? And I'm going to dive right into it, into this verse, because the last time when we were here, Jolene had brought her friend Yoshi. And Yoshi was really agitating for a certain verse that I thought was the one that I was trying not to get to so fast because it really is the one that hits this question dead on. Jesus is about to begin the Sermon on the Mount and he gives probably the best summary of what he thinks of the applicability of the Old Testament going forward. And I was saying that it looks like for most of us, we are not bound by the restrictions and the rules in the law. And he said, but what about this verse? And I said, all right, we're going to go there next time. I wish he was here because he is an expert on this. He's a Messianic Jew, is that right? And so he's studied this very carefully. And I did talk to him afterwards. So I'll try to represent his view if I could. But here's the key I want to follow in this verse. This is Jesus saying, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to get rid of them. At least that's what we hear. I'd like to focus on this word. I've come to fulfill them. The key for us, if you're wondering what is the usefulness to us of the law, comes down to this word fulfill. What could fulfill mean if Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill it? What could it mean? Well, one way you could understand fulfill is to say he's simply going to accomplish it or he's going to obey it. He's coming to obey the law and show that somebody could do it perfectly. And maybe you've heard that in churches. Another meaning could be that he's going to bring out the full meaning. He's going to reinterpret it somehow. He's going to extend it. He's going to help us to understand it better. And actually, that was a position that Yoshi took, which maybe what he was really doing in some cases was reinterpreting the law because he had the authority to do that. And I don't disagree with that position because Jesus is about to go into a series of six examples of, you've heard it said that, but now I say to you. So there's good evidence for this one. Or it means he's going to complete it, to bring it to its completion, to its conclusion, once it's fulfilled in him. The answer is, you want to take a guess? Most commentators that I looked at, in fact, all of them say A is not possible. At least the language that is used does not really imply that he's coming to obey it. Fulfill doesn't fit that way. It's somewhere between B and C, but most believe that what Jesus is saying, the majority view vastly among almost every person I looked at, and I respect these commentators immensely, especially on the book of Matthew, is he's coming to say, it's all been pointing to me. It comes to its culmination in me. It's not just that I'm going to show you how to live it out. It's not just that I'm going to reinterpret it. Something is going to change now that I'm here. Everything changes from this point forward. Why is that important to us? Why do we care? Because otherwise, we'd really have to take seriously a lot of these rules and restrictions and regulations from the law. And many of us, frankly, don't. But we've never understood why not. We've never had a good reason to say why not. So let me walk a little bit further forward and show you why people believe this. If you look at the next verse, here's the key. He says, for truly I tell you, 
Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. When we read that in plain English, it looks like he's saying, I'm not making the law go anywhere. I'm just fulfilling it, but it's not going anywhere. The key to understand is what does until everything is accomplished mean? And most people agree that he is accomplishing it. The word accomplished is very similar. He's saying the same concept. It's fulfilled in me. It's accomplished in me. It's not going anywhere. But I'm accomplishing its very purpose. The very purpose of the law has finally arrived. I'm here. And now everything changes. Yoshi had brought up and said, but you've got to read the next verse. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaching these commands will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And to be fair to his position, he said, you've got to look at this and say, it says you've got to practice it to be great in the kingdom. But the question again is, what commands is he talking about? What is it that he's supposed to be teaching one another? Almost every commentator I looked at said that what Jesus is saying here is you, you can't teach people that the Old Testament has no applicability. That these laws have no applicability. Jesus has fulfilled them and they are accomplished. That doesn't mean that we are still bound by them. I'm going to show you in a minute how Jesus does that. So again, they're in the kingdom of heaven and further proof of why this position is taken is this verse. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. These people who follow the law, it says, will not enter. Now I know people think Pharisees are bad people. Pharisees, they're hypocrites. But in this case, Jesus is using them as the model of people who followed everything to the letter of the law. And yet he was saying, and that's not good enough. Well, it was in the Old Testament. What's changed? Jesus is here. Everything has changed. Everything is different. Because Jesus has fulfilled it, completed it, oh yeah, and a bunch of other things that happens when God himself comes in the flesh and changes everything. So here's how I'd put it together. When you ask the question, does the law still apply? It's kind of a trick question. Because it depends on what you mean by apply. So I'm going to reinterpret it this way. And this was a question somebody asked. Does the law still apply to us? I'd quibble maybe with the word apply. The law has not been set aside. Jesus makes that very clear. It's not been set aside, but it's been fulfilled in him. He's saying, I'm not letting it be abolished. I'm not setting it aside, but I am fulfilling it. It needs to be there, but I'm fulfilling it. So any continued applicability of the law must be reinterpreted in light of Jesus' teachings. And I'm going to show you how that works in a moment. You have to look at everything differently. And the result is that most of the purposes of the law don't apply to us anymore today. The purposes. Not that the law can be set aside, but the very reasons we had the law because of Jesus' teachings, his fulfillment. That sounds abstract. I know, I sound like I'm delivering a paper at this point. Let me give you some examples that will make it more relevant to your life. I don't think there's anything in the Old Testament that is more crucial to the identity of Israel than the Sabbath, circumcision, and the dietary restrictions. Do you agree? I mean, those are kind of what characterized the nation. I mean, there were lots of other laws that you had to follow. But Sabbath circumcision and dietary restrictions were key. And so I'm just going to demonstrate to you how Jesus changes things. Let's start with the Sabbath. Here's the first one. In Exodus 13, 15, it says that whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. Anybody work today? No? Everybody was off? Good. 
You can live through the next slide. Numbers 15.32 and verse 35 shows an example. A man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. They brought him before Moses and the Lord said to Moses, this man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. He was just gathering some wood and God said, stone him. That's the standard under the law. But in Matthew 12, we find Jesus and his disciples walking around and they pick grain, which is also work, the same as the person picking the wood. And Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus says. In response to his critics who says he's broken the Sabbath, Jesus says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm greater than the Sabbath. I'm greater than even the regulation you have about the Sabbath. And in Mark, in the same incident as it's told there, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, when they said, how can you let the disciples pick grain on the Sabbath? That's work. Something must have changed. Otherwise, why is that poor guy getting stoned for collecting wood? And Jesus is saying, it's not wrong. You can say he's reinterpreting the law. But what he's really doing is saying that I am actually modifying its requirements. And I am greater than it. Something has changed. I am here. And things change from this point. Yes. No, I'm just so, I'm struggling with it. I'm just struggling with it because God is like the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. And God has like a certain character. And, and so in my mind, there's all these things like jumbled around like, okay, the law and some of the harshness that happened in the Old Testament and whatever, it was supposed to point toward Jesus. There was a purpose to it and all these things. But then I see a verse that's so beautiful to me, like I, de I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But where was mercy for the guy that was like, you know, collecting wood? Or that if Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath to give us a day of rest and put it in law so we have, why was that guy killed? Like, if so, it's just, it almost seems like a cognitive dissonance that we're taking what Christ said and we're like, oh, well, because he said this, let's go back and reinterpret and make it work. That's how it seemed. I'm not saying that's what it is. But especially people that are kind of more intellectual about these things would be like, no, that's totally cognizant. You're just totally reinterpreting based on your quote-unquote Messiah's words that seem to not fit. So. so let me respond to your the Lord being the same today as he was yesterday and tomorrow and all that kind of immutable characteristic of God. Nothing about God's immutable characteristics of being unchanging would apply to the law having a limited purpose and a limited duration. Right. So if I could just remind you two weeks ago, we cited Jeremiah 31, 33 and a couple verses forward where even God through the prophets was telling his people that the law would someday be replaced with a new covenant. And that covenant was going to be different than the older covenant that they were under. So it wasn't meant to be permanent. It had a purpose. We identified some of the purposes like it's to make Israel completely distinct from its neighbors. It's actually so that God is holy, they are holy, meaning the set apart type of holy. So that we said that if he wanted to make them wear purple armbands, that was okay as to set them apart, but he actually gave them these other rules. 
some of them which are beneficial, but most of them were intended to show their distinct nature from everybody around them. So that means that I'm actually trying to establish that the law had completed its purpose when Jesus fulfills it. And that is why he can now say things are different. I'm not just reinterpreting, although you're right, the tension's there to make it sound like, hey, if you really want mercy and not sacrifice, couldn't we have done that under the law? And the answer would be, but the law had a different purpose. The law was different, and now it's because it's reached its culmination and fulfillment in Christ, he can actually make a statement like this, and he's not contradicting that period, because what he's really saying is, that's not applicable anymore. It's just not applicable anymore. So just like the bigger picture where it was worth more than this one man's life to continue to point towards Christ and to, and to accomplish this greater... And next week we're going to talk about why somebody like that would have been put to death under the Old Covenant. Because even if we resolve that the Old Covenant has found its fulfillment in Christ and now we're moving forward in a New Covenant, we're defining the parameters. Next week we go back and say, okay, now let's just go back to the Old Covenant and talk about why people were being put to death so much for some things that seem to us like mercy should have reigned. Let me throw one more verse up and then I'm gonna take Jolene's comment. Look at Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17, where Paul comments on what's going on here in the same way. And he says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. These were a shadow of what was to come, but what was to come has come. Jolene. What I'm kind of struggling with, too, is like, um, of the laws in the Old Testament that the Christians actually do, you know, look to and try to follow or even make it a part of their Sunday school are the Ten Commandments. Now, Keeping the Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments. So why would we say, like, what makes it different? And why would we say, well, you don't even need to keep the Sabbath now because, you know, that things have changed. In truth, Jesus nowhere affirms the entirety of the Ten Commandments. In fact, you're totally right. So this is what, the Fourth Commandment, I think it is? Right, right. But you, but you should know that, right? Shouldn't you? The Fourth Commandment, right? <laughs> right. So I think this is the Fourth Commandment, unless I'm wrong, in which case I'll edit the talk. So like, the Fourth <laughs> Commandment. I'll just blur it in there. I'll get you. Can you say later, like, First, second, third, fourth, fifth, and then I'll just like put in the right one. Um, yes, I mean, your point is well taken that Jesus does seem to be going directly against the fourth commandment unless what he's really doing is not saying, for example, there is no Sabbath because his statement about the that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, wouldn't contradict the fourth commandment, but it would have some trouble with the idea that you could receive the death penalty for violation of that covenant. Morgan. People go back to the Old Testament and arbitrarily choose which ones they'll keep, right? But I think because of that statement by Jesus, that's actually one that I value or, or say, Jesus seems to be affirming the principle of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Now what might be the wrongness of it was <clears throat> what the rabbis seemed to do, which was to say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you know, like they had so warped it to the fact where, you know, if you are hungry, or picking grain in the field, as his disciples were. So you say, like, you guys have blown this because you've gone so overboard. It's not to say that we shouldn't rest. We should. I'm sure Jesus seemed to keep Sabbaths. There are certain things he did, but he said, you know, I'm always still healed. Habit is, the Sabbath is for healing. Yeah, I would say that Jesus seems to affirm the Sabbath and explain why it was created. The place where we would run into trouble, though, is back to Monique's point, which is, okay, 
So if the Sabbath really was made for man and not the other way around, not the fourth commandment, but why in numbers is that guy getting executed for collecting wood? Because you're right. Some people, when they look at Jesus' words, are saying what Jesus is objecting to is all the additional burdens that the Pharisees had created. All the oral tradition that came on top of the Old Testament. And he's saying, that's all baloney. That would get around the fourth commandment issue, but it wouldn't get around the issue of the collecting wood. Well, I was just speaking to why I would say when Christians take this out more seriously than maybe not eating uh, crab or shellfish, right? The reason that I would say that's not arbitrary. Like there's a reason why I have a value in Sabbath and it seems to be because Jesus seems to affirm this and then, but you have these statements by Paul saying, eat and drink, whatever, you know, like. Yeah, let's look at circumcision to get a, a different perspective on how this one works. In Exodus 12, 48, it says, A foreigner, even a foreigner, residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat the Passover. So there was even a, an idea of what it would be like for foreigners to participate, they'd have to be circumcised. Of course, Leviticus 12.3 says on the eighth day, a boy is circumcised. So all Israelites had to be circumcised, but even the foreigners who joined them. So this became the big issue when the Christians were joining the church who were Gentile Christians. Do we also have to be circumcised? Because we even have some guidance here. If you're joining the Lord's people, and we went through this verse before, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in Acts 15... We see that the church meets and decides no circumcision necessary for Gentile Christians to join the church. Peter even gets up and says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It's not the law anymore. Paul, if you read Galatians, was fighting heavily against the number of people in the church who were trying to say you need to follow the law in order to be saved. And he was saying, absolutely not. What's changed? The law has reached its fulfillment. Do the same thing with dietary restrictions. Here, I'm not going to even put up the verses because there are so many of them <laughs> about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. So I'll just say the law filled with dietary restrictions. Mark 7, 18 through 20, here's Jesus. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And then in parentheses, these are not my parentheses, these are in the scripture. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. To borrow a phrase from Jolene, boom. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to say, cite me a verse and don't use Paul, I'd cite this one. Because it's Jesus speaking and it's chronicled by Mark saying, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's it. It's over. Boom. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. We saw this, of course, that's why in Acts we see the story of Peter who sees the vision in front of him. We quibbled a little bit about, well, was the vision about visiting with Gentiles? Was the vision about really eating all foods? We already know that Jesus declared them clean. 
It wouldn't be inconsistent to see Peter saying, I've never eaten anything impure," and the voice saying to him, don't call anything impure that God has made. Well, wait a minute, in the Old Testament, you couldn't have shellfish, and you couldn't have this, and you couldn't have that, and no pigs. Like, what's going on? Something has changed. The law has reached its fulfillment. That's good news for all the people who have tattoos in here, I think, right? But didn't that law apply only to the Jews? What if you're a Jew and a Christian? Yeah, and that's the question, because I think at this point, there are no Gentile Christians in the church. If anything, you could say that there's just Jesus and his band of followers. And he's saying, I'm declaring all foods clean. We don't even have to worry about the issue, because right now there's nobody but Jewish Christians. Okay, now, one of the things I want to close with, though, here's what I want to close. This is a long passage of Scripture, but it touched me this week. It touched me because Paul addresses this issue at length, in Romans 14. And he makes it very clear that the analysis we've just been doing is right. But he makes something even more clear that's even better. He says that, you know what? It doesn't matter because the standard really for us is love to one another. And it was so touching to me to read this and understand that while we could make a big deal out of this, there might be people among us here, for example, who want to follow certain rules. Like, I want to have a Sabbath on Saturday, or I want to have it on Sunday, or I don't want to eat meat, or I don't want to eat that kind of animal. And, and this passage actually addresses this. And it came in a way to me as a corrective to make sure that we never get so dogmatic about saying, you see, Jesus said, and that's it, let's just be done. Because Paul adds this in his concern for the church. So I'm going to put it up on the screen and read it to you. He says, accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Sorry, Jill. <laughs> the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them, all of them. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so for the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so for the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. 
Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. It's clear where he comes out on this. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. You know, I was so amazed that there was a passage in Scripture that was this long that hit an issue that you might not even know is happening in our group where people are wondering about these very things. About how we should correct one another or not live with one another and exactly how to express love to one another. When even here we might have differing views about what is clean and what is not and the applicability of continuing to practice certain ways. Paul is making it clear, yes, I believe that all the things we just looked at, that is the right analysis. But what's even greater is unity and love for one another and not causing one another to stumble and to not get tied up in these small disputable matters. So I think if you're a person who says, I love shrimp, that's okay. If you're a person who's saying, I don't really understand these rules and I don't know that they really apply to me, yes, Jesus has set you free. And if you're somebody who says, but I want to continue doing these things because they honor God and they do in my mind, he would say, continue to do so and keep that to yourself to avoid quarrel with others. And I think that's a great standard for us to learn from and to follow directly from St. Paul. Next week, where we're really going is kind of where this series is intended to go. Here are all the things that you could be put to death for. Striking your father or mother. Kidnapping a person. Cursing your father or mother. Doing work on the Sabbath. We already saw that today. Committing adultery. Both parties just killed. Having sex with an animal, being a medium or a wizard, blaspheming the Lord, and a few others that we'll pick up on, such as trying to study the ark when it's about to tip over. Why would the God who wants mercy and not sacrifice, as Monique was alluding to, why would he bring about these difficult things? I would say that starting next week, we really start getting into the interesting stuff that people really want to hear about to really try to understand what is God doing in these passages. Yes? Just something that's kind of on my heart since we're headed that way next week anyways. Um, like, I understand the struggles, like, the people that have checked out of the faith, the quotes that you read at the beginning. I understand that, especially when it comes to the characteristics that they might see in people or what they think they attribute to God or, like, putting to death the guy that collected wood and, and things like that. Like, why that would be deeply disturbing. But I think it's good that we talk about looking at the bigger picture and how it's pointing to something and how that must be more important than one man's life. And so I just wanted to kind of throw out there as hope, maybe, for people that struggle with that, that as I read through the Old Testament, something that surprised me was not so much all the places where I saw people put to death or like things like that that happened, but how much there was the same message that Christ gave about mercy and love and faith and treating people that are alien in the land and people that are poor and, and justice and how to you know address injustice and so I just kind of want to I don't know throw that out there that that's also very present and as many times as it's easy to see the negative and point that out I think we could point out a lot of places where you can see Christ and what he teaches and things that are you know characteristics we see in the Old Testament or in New Testament throughout the Old Testament as well. Good and I think that we will 
need that reminder constantly because even in these books that I'm reading that are focusing on the negative images we have of God, all of them affirm that there's a lot of places, way more than the negative places, that we see that affirmation. Of course, what most of us would like to see is only that. Because we could think all of this, you had me at all of these verses, but then when you killed the guy collecting wood, I just kind of didn't understand. And that's okay. That's kind of why we're going to be kind of with a microscope maybe, zooming in on some of those stories. Although a couple of them are hard to miss. Not like we need to look too hard. Some of them we've just kind of thought, hmm, wonder what it's about. We pray and close up and thank you for your patience and letting us get through this part uh, so we can now move on to something that I think is going to be a lot more raucous and hear a lot more of your comments starting next week. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for your fulfillment of the law. I'm thankful that you have told us that it continues for all time and yet you have fulfilled it to lift its burden from us. That as Paul says, we have now the law of the spirit, the law of life and not the law of death. Let love reign supreme in this group, Lord, over and above all of these academic issues. Let us learn what it now means to be able to think critically about the way that people pick and choose. Let us learn to think more beautifully about the way that you have set us free so that we may do your good works unbound by the burden that you fulfill in the law. Pray this in your name. Amen.